Welcome to Be The Light Podcast with C.B. Barthlow, lead pastor of Denver Beacon. I am your host, Pastor Ty Morris. Our desire is to lead the lost, the broken, and the hopelessness of our communities, to be light bearers in our city set on a hill. Now tune in for our sermon series. We're going to close our series in chapter 7 today. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter from verse 36 all the way down through verse 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50. There it is. It reads like this. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering him in his private thoughts, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered him, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, who is forgiven little. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now that is a party, right? The title of our message today is to pick up from last week's message. How many were here? Show of hands. Hard word last week, right? Hard word. The title of our message today is the proper response to hard truth. I don't want you to have heard that hard truth last week and miss it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for our time together today. Thank you for your word that illuminates our life and your will for us. God, today, would you soften our hearts that we might receive? Would you continue the transformation process in us? Amen. Last week was a hard message. I listened to it on the way home from school the other day, and I I liked it, actually. Um, I I, I don't know if you're like me, but I kind of like a good old-fashioned hard truth. That's the ones that change me, right? Be nice to me, that's one thing, but tell me the God's honest truth so that I can become who God's called me to be. Well, that's a whole nother level of caring for me. 
The problem with hard truth is that um, there's many ways to respond to hard truth. And we're going to talk about that in, in just a moment. The Pharisee and the woman both represent different ways in which you could respond to hard truth. But this picture for us, this picture of this woman is actually God's model, his best, his highest method for us to respond when he speaks hard truth to us. Now, this woman with the alabaster box, no doubt you've heard this. Songs have been written about this moment, and many, many messages, probably far greater than I could preach, have been preached about this. But I think it's important that we lay this exactly in the right place at the right time. This has some parallels in other parts of the Gospels, but it is not the other stories. You may have heard this be mentioned as Mary of Bethany from John chapter 12. It's not her. It's not her. Though the stories align in many details, they are distinctly different and they're teaching from different vantage points, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John. They're teaching two very different audiences and they're teaching very different lessons from the Lord. This is also not Mary Magdalene from Mark 16. Though the same idea about the identity of the woman aligns, it is still not the same authors to the same audiences or teaching the same thing. This woman in this moment is altogether different. And it's important that we know that because what God's trying to say through the Apostle Luke, through this pen, this inspired text, is very unique through the context that we just walked. Remember last week, Jesus had turned his face and his tenor to the crowd who was around him, and the beautiful, sweet tone with which he embraced John by commending him and his disciples by encouraging them shifted to one of rebuke and correction, not only to the leaders, but to the believers at the time and the moment to say you are like children, you complain and you grumble and you miss me. It is a completely different moment. But what's unique is that there is a parallel. In Matthew chapter 11, this same conversation is also chronicled by Matthew. Matthew, who was Levi, a tax collector, who writes his gospel from a very chronological order, a very um, um, prophetically inspired uh, tone to a uniquely Hebrew audience, was here in this moment at this time. And he too remembers when Jesus corrected the people. In Matthew 11 and verse 9 and 10, it says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Remember, we said this the other day. Jesus says, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger. You remember this from two weeks ago. Then he goes on in verse 17, we played the flute for you. This is that song, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Matthew is in the same moment at the same time. But gospel writers can be in the same moments and pull out different facets of those moments, right? That's one of the critics, one of the critiques of the Bible, specifically the New Testament, by people who have not done enough due diligence is that the gospels tell the same story, but from different lenses. They believe that that means that it's false. If it had happened one way, they would have all said the same thing. Amen? But I don't know if you've ever played the telephone game. It doesn't really work like that. I don't know. Hear me. If you've ever even been in, in a car accident, one car accident in an intersection told from the vantage point of this person and that person and the people on the street corners will tell the same massive story, the grand narrative, but all of the details and perspectives will be different, right? Remember, this driver who made an illegal left turn will not say, I made an illegal left turn. They will say, the light was green, right? 
Perspective, intention, audience, all change the way the story is told. And so when Matthew is writing about this moment, he's not writing in the same way that Luke would write. And is it cool if I teach for just a moment before we get into this? When Luke is teaching here, he's writing a very clear and detailed account of the moment for a Greek audience as if to say, there was this man, he came from the Jews. You gotta know everything because it's about to change everything. And when Matthew writes it, he says, there is this man, he's come from us in the line of David. That's why he gives his genealogy. And he says, and he meets this prophecy and he meets this prophecy and he's coming to do something different. And so when Matthew writes it, the way that he paints this picture is there's also a conversation in this moment with Jesus and the people that invites the people differently than the Jewish people would have understood God's invitation to righteousness. You see, previously, Matthew and the rest of his Hebrew contemporaries would have recognized would have believed and would have lived under Judaic law, Levitical law, was meant to govern them so that they might become more like God. But Jesus had come and begin to preach something different. He didn't come to abolish the law, don't get that twisted, he came to fulfill the law, and the way in which he came to fulfill them was by being the propitiation, that's a big Bible term, meaning the payment for your sin. And that was altogether new to a Hebrew audience. And so when Matthew is talking about the same story with Jesus and the same people, he says there was also this moment that you, you can't miss. It's in Matthew 11, verses 25 through 29. It says, at the time that Jesus declared this, he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to the little children, talking about childlike faith, not childish faith. And he says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. He's identifying himself as the Son of Man, the rightful Son, the Messiah, the Christ of the God. He's the promised Messiah that the Hebrew people are looking for. Verse 28, and he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, that happened in this same conversation, and Matthew, writing to a certain audience, said, you have to hear this part. But Luke, when writing, said, that part was rad. But when he yelled at the people, that was even better. But in this moment, told through two different lenses, are two different kinds of people who hear the hard truth and respond differently. So first, let's talk about the Pharisee with his initial response to hard truth, okay? We're going to come back to that passage in Matthew 11 in just a second. But the Pharisee, with his initial response to hard truth, the Bible tells us that this Pharisee, having heard Jesus speak in power and in correction, then decides he's going to invite Jesus over for dinner. He invites him into his home, and he invites him, I think, to dine and to demonstrate that he's kind of grasping what Jesus has said. Have you ever been in a religious setting, and other people seem to know exactly what's going on, and you have literally no idea what's going on. <laughs> you remember the first time I remember going to a Catholic church and they were like, peace be with you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> See, but if you're Catholic, you know it's like, and also with you. What? 
You go to a certain church and everybody stands up and they put their hands up. You go, go to some of our churches and people are shaking and, and laying on the ground. There's even an entire ministry in some churches of women who carry large handkerchiefs to cover other people who have fallen down. If you don't know what's going on, you're like, is that a napkin ministry? What is happening here? I think for the moment that the Pharisee is, is offended by what Jesus said. But I think he doesn't want to let on that he doesn't really know what's going on. And so his initial response to hard truth is to sort of dine and to demonstrate to Jesus, don't worry, I'm not like the rest of them. You can come into my house. What's interesting here is it, it may not be the right response. We're going to see the way that he kind of fails in this. But, but it is a better response than some of us have. You know, when some of us hear hard truth, our first reaction, our first response is simply to reject it. You ever have somebody just tell you God's honest truth and you're like, you're wrong. You just don't want to hear it, right? Or other times you've heard a hard truth and your response is not to reject it or to ignore it, but it's to rebel against it. It's like that self-fulfilling prophecy. If someone says you are something, you're like, I'm not, but I am now. But the Pharisee doesn't respond in those ways. The Pharisee, because he's kind of a man of politics, Mm. kind of a man who knows how to play the religious game, knows the right things to say, so that after the pastor preaches a hard word, he's like, oh, pastor, that was such a good word. That was for me. Thank you. I'm not talking to any of y'all, but you've done this before, right? He just, the pastor's just all in your business, reading your mail and talking truth that you wish he wouldn't talk about. And when you're leaving, you want to get out quick. But there he is just at the front door with, hey, how are you doing? Come on over. We know how awkward that feels for you, just so you know. And you say, so glad you hurt my feelings today. <laughs> it's initial response. It's, um, it's a playing the game response. It's, a, it's that, that really hurt, and I don't think I'm really even ready for it, but I'm willing to give some temporal, momentary focus on it. What happens here is this Pharisee, he invites Jesus in, and, and, and his response is sort of short-term and easy because the Pharisee is a man of means, so he realizes, I can bring Jesus into dinner. It's not gonna harm me any. Let's hear what this guy really has to say. He invites Jesus in, and I think what's really, really good here is that verse 39 and and then this little later section from verse 44 through 46 kind of show like his actions and his feelings or his heart or his mind, they're not aligned, right. right? He says, Jesus, come in. Bible says they recline at table. I love that because it perfectly paints a picture of what they would have done in an ancient Near East dinner table, right? Th there are no chairs. You know that, right? It's mostly just pillows and everybody, I'm going to do it because I like to do this thing. Everybody is just like this, just like grapes, man. Just like, <laughs> exactly. Just enjoying their meal together. They're reclining at table. And as they're there, a woman walks in and she does not belong. And the Bible says that the Pharisee, while reclining next to Jesus with his poker face on, as though to say, you're welcome and we're together and I'm learning from you and willing to be transformed, in his mind is judging Jesus. 
He is evaluating the words and the demeanor of Jesus as if to say cute religious ideas, but my ways are still gonna be better than your ways. And I hope I'm already in your business right now because a lot of us, when we come to church, we recline at table with our religious face on and we're like, yes, hallelujah. But in our head, we're like, no, never, absolutely not. I mean, I love the way that you say we should give, Pastor. Generosity is exactly the hallmark of the Christian spirit. I won't be giving, but it is so good to hear that. I love when we talk about equipping one another. Pastor Rob is gonna teach this course every quarter about how to go deeper. That's what we need, Pastor. I'm busy those days, but that is what we need. You see it? Poker face, right? But the heart is still not changed. And I'm just gonna move on real quick to the next point because I think it's important. You should understand that you're not alone if you've been like that before. Everyone in this room at some point, maybe today or in the past, and can I tell you that no matter how God works, he's always changing you, always confronting you. You may even fall into the same behavior again. Do you know why? Because old habits are hard to break. Old habits of poker face religion are hard to break. Authenticity is nearly impossible for the human experience. If every one of us here (laughs) stood up every time we felt convicted, there'd be no need for seats, right? But we don't wanna do that because we don't want people to know what we're struggling with. If the pastor's gonna talk about pornography, every man in the room gets worried because it's a plague right? If the pastor's going to talk about gossip, similar things begin to happen amongst other populations in our church. The truth of the matter is, is that most of us have learned how to fake the funk. And that's why we get stuck in our funk. You live with the same struggles and sins because you just don't want people to know that they're your struggles and sins. And so when the woman walks into the dinner party, the Pharisee who's just made Jesus feel so welcome. Come in, Rabbi. He can't help himself but to hate the sinner in the room because that's just kind of who he is. He can't help himself but to judge others around him because that's just what he's been doing for most of his life. Now, here's the best part, and I think we we could miss it here, and I'm moving as quick as I can because we're going to spend most of our time talking about this woman, but I I think the best part about the interaction between this Pharisee, Simon, and and Jesus is that the the Pharisee uh, judges Jesus in his mind, amen? It says that the woman of the city, make no mistake, that means she's a prostitute. She walks into this dinner party. Now, a dinner party is a closed party, but in the ancient Near East, a pharisaical dinner party would have been in an open-air courtyard, and it was not outside of the custom for people who were not invited to stand on the outside and look in. It was the one, of, one of the ways they would learn cultural expectations. It was an aspirational voyeurism so that people who had none would watch those who had. It's literally just like E, the network that we all watch the Kardashians on. But she wasn't allowed in. And when she walks in, the Pharisee in his mind says, if this guy was really a prophet, 
he never believed that Jesus was a prophet. Never. He was just waiting for the moment for his innermost feelings and skepticism to come out. Do you know why? Because he got his feelings hurt last conversation. See, he wasn't moved by the conversation. The hard truth didn't challenge him as if to point a lens at his own personal sin and failing and be invited to greater. No, he loved his own personal sin and failing. He was self-righteous in his own eyes. And so when Jesus confronted him, it did not call him to change. It called him to confrontation. But because he's a man of politics, poker face and hatred, public bluffing, (laughs) private malice. Have you ever felt malice in a church? You ever been so mad? Ah, come on now. I've been to church and been like, that pastor has no idea what he's talking about. Do you know why? Because he has every idea what he's talking about. He's talking about me. And I'm pissed. Am I right? Can we be real? He, he talked about me, and that offended me, so he's an idiot. <laughs> you don't think I know, you know, you call me an idiot? I know. I love you. We're the same. When we're confronted with hard truth, most of us, we reject it, we rebel against it, or we make a plan to get back. And the Pharisee, in his mind, says if this man was really a prophet, He'd know exactly what kind of woman this was and he wouldn't touch her. And Jesus says, hey, Simon. (laughs) Simon didn't say anything. Simon was here. Have you ever thought something but actually said it out loud? (laughs) Don't you think Simon was like, dude, I I didn't. And Jesus was like, no, he didn't say it. I heard it. (laughs) Wait, hold on, say it again. You didn't say it, but I heard it. I wish the Pharisee would have just right then, he should have known that Jesus was God, was who he says he was. I wish he would have repented right there and said, oh my gosh, you know what I'm thinking? Sorry. <laughs> Private thoughts and then Jesus publicly calls him out. Rest assured your pastor will not prob- publicly call you out. But Jesus will. Jesus will confront your failings and expose your sin so that you can change because he just loves you that much. Don't don't get it twisted. Your, Your secret sin, the one that you have that no one knows, it won't be like that forever. It will be exposed. You get the choice to expose it alongside him in the journey to be vulnerable and authentic and repentant and let God do the hard work and then move on or you get to be rebellious until such a time that God loves you so much that he can't take you from where you are to where you need to be without first removing it so he just exposes it and it goes away and that part is really hard ask any pastor who's failed ask any one of these giants in the faith who's had a moral failure On the other side of that correction is grace and beauty and mercy, but it's messy and it's disastrous. And Jesus calls the Pharisee out of his private thoughts publicly because he wants to guide him. He wants to love him and he wants to help him. Jesus doesn't say back to the Pharisee something similarly judgmental or cynical or rude. 
He actually takes him on a journey. He tells him a story. He says, Pharisee, if there are two people who have debt, one small and one large, and the debt provider forgives both, who will love? You see this, how he's engaging in a conversation? He's walking alongside. He is pulling ever so gently at the thread of the Pharisee's skepticism and his cynicism so that he can pull him into the place of compassion where Jesus resides. What he's doing is saying, I know where your heart is right now wrong place, but I'm so invested with you and I'm on the long term that we're going to walk until it gets to the right place. Jesus is inviting the Pharisee out of his criticism to compassion. He says, you've judged correctly. For those who are forgiven much, love much. And he's, God, man, I just, in the That is the way that Jesus loves us. He is so patient with you, amen? Amen. Last week when I was like delivering a hard word and you were offended and then Jesus talked to you much better on the car ride home than I did. You know what I'm talking about? Wasn't he just tender with you? Working with you, strategizing with you, walking you through the how and why and what it will look like to be obedient to him? You need that in your life, amen? You need that in your Jesus, and it's always available, but here's a secret amongst the church. You need that from your Jesus, and he provides that through his body, the believers. I wanna tell you this right now. It's an absolute push to community. Here it is. You can't get from Jesus what you need all by yourself and all alone. You don't like that, right? Because we think Jesus is so sufficient that we can be rebellious, not pray, not read, not worship, not go to church, not be in community, and he'll still provide through all those things. And here's the deal. He provided all those things so that you'd have the fullness of Jesus Christ. He gave you the body of believers such that when you walked in this room, you were like, oh my gosh, this, <laughs> it has what I need in here. It's not that Jason's going to save me. But it's the Jason's tender touch when I walk in the room room will remind me just how gentle my Savior is with me. It's not that Ty's going to lead me to deliverance, but when Ty gets to telling his story and taking us right back into the verb and the verse and the chorus and we do the bridge again, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, (laughs) that's what it's going to be like when I'm praising Jesus one day because you can't do that by yourself. I've seen you praising your car. It's not as sweaty. We need each other so we can get Jesus together. Amen. You need somebody to call you out publicly. Come on. Even from your private thoughts. You need somebody in your small group who knows you so well that when a hard message comes like last Sunday's message and you're in small group all mad about it. They go, I can see you didn't like that. Walk us through it. And then you feel so safe and you go, I just don't like when that happens. You need this. Amen. Let's talk about the proper response. You ready? 15 minutes. 10 minutes. Is there a Broncos game today? Is there? What time? Okay, so I got about, I got about 90 minutes. All right, cool. The proper response to hard truth. Let's talk about this woman, and then I'll get you home in time to watch the Broncos score four points. Why are they so bad? I don't understand. Four, uh, come on. He's good, but he can't throw touchdowns. That's not what we're preaching about today. 
Proper response to hard truth. I want to look at this woman for just a moment. This woman, she walks in to the room in verse 37. It says, behold, a woman of the city, a sinner. She's a prostitute. She's well known. And though the Pharisee thinks she doesn't belong, don't you get it twisted that he doesn't know this woman. She knows how to get into his house. So she walks in, she sees Jesus. And she begins to demonstrate the proper response to hard truth. If you read verse 38, it says this. She walks in and she stands behind. Jesus, Jason, come here real quick. Come right here. Uh, Face right there. Jesus. Doesn't he look just like him? (laughs) The Bible says the woman finds her way into this party that she does not belong in. Every eye is on her. They don't want her here. She's not allowed here. She's not even allowed here. She's not even allowed in the congregation. And she's most assuredly not allowed near the prophet, the rabbi, the teacher. He's holy. She's unclean. She can't be here. And she walks right in and she stands behind him. Notice that she doesn't stand in front of him. She doesn't stand to his side. She stands behind him. Her immediate posture, the posture, the proper response to hard truth is to get in line behind the king. She comes to a place of follow first. Come on. She doesn't come like this. Jesus, you spoke a hard word. I've got a big calling on my life. Let's talk about my purpose. She said, you you make a big calling there is purpose in you. Bible says she begins to weep. Oh, she just, she's wrecked. And she's weeping so much in absolute adoration that the man who told her everything about her life, the one in whom is life, She cries so much, it says she builds a pool of tears around his feet. This is unadulterated, unhinged worship. This is what worship looks like. I mean, real worship is a disaster zone, right? Am I right? Anybody praised your way through something? You have to replace clothing, carpets, everything. It's just like there's not enough tissue in the world. The Bible says she gets in line to follow. She begins to worship. She cries so much that it creates a pool and she falls to her knees, a surrender posture. She is beside him, behind him, worshiping him. But then the next thing, you can't miss it. It says that she uses her hair to wipe his feet. See, in the ancient Near East, when someone would come to a dinner party, they would provide them with bowls of water to wash their feet. Depending on the wealth of the host, there would even be somebody there who would sit down and wash their feet. It was ceremonial, but it was also meant to say, what's out there stays out there. This is a sacred place. And she begins to use her hair. Don't miss it. She's a prostitute. Her beauty is her key. And she begins to wash his feet. 
The posture of service is to say for her, I actually don't care what it's gonna cost me to serve this king because he's now my king and whatever he has, I have and so I give him all that I have so that it's his. Amen, don't miss this. She's, She's in line. She's worshiping and she's serving. And then it says she walks in with the alabaster box of ointment. It's perfume. Don't get it twisted. See it all the way through the perspective. She is a prostitute. Her beauty and her scent are the allure that gives her the opportunity to make her money. She is sustained, ready, by this perfume. This is not the days of the shower. Come on, somebody. The perfume is what keeps her appealing. This is her most valuable possession. And after she's gotten in line and she's worshiped and she's served, she takes what is most important to her and she begins to anoint his feet. I can imagine in my head she is saying the words of the Bible back to herself, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. She is not worried about what this actually cost her or what anybody thinks about this. It is for him, it's always been for him. She loves this Jesus, this perfume is his. Thank you, pastor, thank you, pastor. That's the proper response to hard truth is to be moved by it, to be hurt by it, to be changed by it, and then to rush into it, amen? Amen? Now here's the deal, Jesus says some strange things to her, but before he does, he's gonna talk to her about salvation, and we're gonna unpack that in just a second, but I need you to see another picture. Because she responds beautifully in verse 38. And then as as Jesus navigates what's just happened with the Pharisee, because it's a trip, right? I mean, it's offensive, it's downright disgusting in the cultural moment in which they sit. And when Jesus confronts the Pharisee and begins to teach the Pharisee what's really happening, something super interesting. He tells that parable about the people who are without debt, right? And then, verse 44, ready? You can't miss this, you cannot miss this. It says in verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, he's facing her, and talking to him. Chanel, come here, it's prop day. <laughs> uh, you face, face, here, come here. Okay, stand right here and face me. Okay, here she is. The proper response to hard truth is that she's gotten in line with God's will. She has worshiped him with her whole heart. She has served him with reckless abandon and she has sacrificed to him everything that matters. And when Jesus sees her, he sees her like this. And he gathers her, and he stands her to his feet, and he holds her by her hand. And he begins a conversation with Simon. Now hold on, because you gotta hear what he says. He says, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped it with her hair. 
He says, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. You might think that in this moment he is comparing the two. But he's not comparing the two because he's not looking at the crowd and saying, judge and judge. He is talking, oh my God, don't miss this. He's talking to, his words are directed to the Pharisee, okay? And the Pharisee in this season would have been the one anointed for adjudication. He was the judge, the religious decision maker. When anyone in this time needed to bring forth something that God needed to rule on, they would bring them to the Pharisee. So as he looks at the woman, he is not comparing the woman to the Pharisee, he is commending the woman to God through the Pharisee. Do you see it? He is talking to the Pharisee, but not talking to the Pharisee. He's talking to God through the Pharisee. He's saying, though your sins may be many, when I walked in, you served me. Where I stood, you loved me. And as I moved, you sacrificed for me. My daughter, your faith has saved you. You you think he's trying to hurt the Pharisee's feelings. He done forgot about the Pharisee. He's, He's here in this moment because she has exhibited the proper response to hard truth. See, Jesus doesn't waste his time with skepticism. He is moved by faith. He says, if you would draw near to me, I would draw near to you. I'm gonna let you down. I made her cry. Oh my goodness. Amen. Oh gosh. Okay, hold on, hold on. Okay, now don't miss this, okay? Are we good? We got two minutes left. Y'all good, do you see this picture, okay? Jesus is responding to the proper response to hard truth. She is broken hearted and she is face to face with Jesus for the very first time in her life but she did not count herself worthy to be face to face with him. That's why she stood behind him so when he turned and stood her to her feet, he began to commend her, commend her sacrifice, commend her connection and talk to the Father on her behalf. That's the position that Jesus lives in. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who's closer than a brother. He is our intercessor. He goes to the Father for for us. Amen. And he says, your sins are forgiven and it freaks out the whole room. And I don't want you to miss this. You see, what she did is not what saved her. Ready? Jesus wasn't moved that she cried and said you're saved because your emotions don't save you. Jesus wasn't moved that she cleaned his feet and saved because your works don't save you. Jesus wasn't moved that she sacrificed and then saved her because your sacrifice and your gift don't save you. This is the same woman in the same room that would have been told through this lens by Matthew, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus made a salvation invitation 
and she in the room, like every other outsider to the party, would have heard him say, who amongst you is hurt? And the woman of the city was hurt most. All she knows is hurt. Her whole life is built on hurt. She's, she feels like she might have been created to be hurt. And he says, take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy. My yoke is light. And for the first time in her life, a man has said nice things to her and has said, I won't hurt you, but I will help you. See, her response to hard truth is because she could see through the hard truth to the gentle Savior who delivers it. That's why he says, woman, your faith has saved you. And your works here today just proved it to the whole world. Stand to your feet. Stand, daughter. That's the message for the room today. Hmm. There will always be hard truth in this room. Fair? Eh? We're always going to be a church that tells each other hard truth. We're always going to be a, a body of believers that sees the king through the hard truth. Walks in it. Walks through it walks together and there will be in each one of those moments a time when Jesus says your faith has saved you. Now show everybody how good I am. Thanks for joining Be The Light Podcast with lead pastor C.B. Barthlow. Visit our website at denverbeacon.org to download our Beacon app. Text Beacon to 97,000. Once again, text Beacon to 97,000. Or join us in person at Beacon this Sunday, 10 a.m. at Comedy Works, 1226 15th Street in Denver, Colorado. Whatever you do, please remember to be the light. Let's go! Let's go!